When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, a typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. There's been an astonishing development in the case of missing Gold Coast mother Marion Barter. The man at the centre of an inquest is now facing fresh claims. A woman in Europe says Rick Blum stole her life savings. Marion Barter was planning an indefinite trip to Europe. Jelen Delua was moving to Australia, both in whirlwind romances, both with the same man. Continents and years apart, he was Rick Blum to Marion, Frederick de Hedeveri to Jelen. She's come forward after her daughter-in-law read about the inquest into Marion's 1997 disappearance and recognised Marion's lover. The first instant I saw him, it was immediate. I was scared. They met in 2006 when her mother-in-law, a lonely widow, put out an ad to meet someone in Belgium. Weeks later, Jelen upended her life, selling her house and making her family nervous. De Hedeveri had shown interest in poisons, then insisted she have a liver ultrasound. He demanded it. I was on the other side of the house, but I heard him scream aggressively. Just before they were to fly to Australia, the coin collector with a limp disappeared. Jelen says he took her life savings. Left away. Well, how much did you take from them, Rick? I, I never took anything. The similarities between Jelen's case and Marion's are striking. Meeting through a lonely heart's ad, selling up to start a new life overseas. The liver scan, Jelen was asked to do it, Marion did. And missing valuables. A coroner is yet to hand down findings into Marion's disappearance. There's no evidence Blum killed her. Jelen has contacted Marianne? authorities. She felt ashamed to have fallen for his show. Not all of it. Despite being asked not to, Jelen told her family about her relationship and plans. Marion didn't. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. This week, I'm joined by a very special guest who I have had numerous back and forths with, but I really wanted to discuss 
the case of Marion Barter with my next guest, who's Joni. So Joni, please introduce yourself to my listeners. Hello, my name's Joni Kondos. Um, I'm obviously from Australia and yeah, I've been supporting Sally for four years now with this quest to find out what's happened to her mother, Marion Barter. Joni, you're so welcome on Crime Analyst and I'm so pleased to speak with you. You've done such a phenomenal job of supporting Sally, which I just want to pay tribute to you for supporting Sally, but also for your incredible investigative skills behind the scenes and and researching the case to actually move the needle forward. And I know that my listeners are going to be really interested to hear what you have to say about the case, but also you got me involved in the case of Marion Barter. And yeah, you did. And that's why I'm bringing you on to Crime Analyst as well, because, you know, from that time, I have been fascinated by the case and really wanting to help to ensure that we uncover and unravel as much as we can to try and help Sally find out what happened to Marion. It's been a huge undertaking. This is a huge investigation, isn't it? It's been absolutely massive and it's certainly not something that I ever anticipated when I was sitting on the couch at midnight unwell, um, listening to yet another true crime podcast and yes, I would never ever have thought in my wildest dreams that we would be here, here now but it's been an absolutely amazing journey and thank you very much to yourself too for, you know, supporting us through this journey too. You've been very much a constant voice throughout the time from when it started in 2019. Well, thank you. And I really did want to help unravel what's gone on here, because as I always say, and and you know that I've said it many times, is that women don't just vanish and, and disappear. And the anguish that Sally and all her family have gone through as a consequence is is unimaginable. Even though I do talk with Sally, it's very hard for anyone to truly understand what it means to her and obviously her brother Owen ending his own life, but really wanting to have answers to what's gone on and having so many doors closed in her face. And you have been somebody who has just been incredible at opening doors and chasing down leads. And one of those doors that you opened was to me of suggesting that Alison Sandy (laughs) talk to me. But before I get to that, just explain how you got involved, Joni. Okay, so I was essentially listening to a true crime podcast. The Lady Vanishes came up. I was sitting there. I was unwell. And I just decided to have a little look around because that was encouraged with the podcast. Um, As soon as I heard the first couple of episodes, I guess my history in um, domestic violence and working as a social worker for many years in crisis intervention, to be quite honest with you, the bells just started ringing from the moment that I heard the basic outline of the story. And it was then when I thought, well, okay, if we can find the surname Ramackle, that is a huge indication of where where things may lead. And so that is when I focused on that and just decided to give it a go. My mother-in-law's grandmother had went missing in 1922. So I've done 15 years of research and we actually located her alive and well. So 
therefore, I guess, having that history and knowing sort of what it took and the complexities of researching in this space, in, in a cold case situation, I guess, yes, that was basically how it all started for me. Well, that's incredible that you found her and you used your research skills to find her. And you did just say that you have an extensive experience as a social worker working in family violence. And I think that's very important in why alarm bells were ringing for you, the same as they were ringing for me as soon as I started to analyse the case. It would be useful, actually, to hear for you, what were some of the alarm bells when you were listening to The Lady Vanishes? What sort of stood out to you just initially? I guess for me it was um, Sally's description of a change in behaviour or a change in an approach to life for her mum. Um, that was the first thing I th- the, you know, that that was, I guess, the first alarm bell for me. The Sarian changed her name so um, via D-Poll. So I thought, okay, you know, this, this is a woman who is perhaps willing to go to those lengths in order to essentially remove her identity or her, or if someone was around, I just felt that there was somebody around and that's not a very good term to use, I suppose, but I just felt as though there was somebody around her and there was an encouragement of doing these things because to me there was absolutely no need for her to sell her home. No, that came as a surprise to a lot of her family too that she would do that. To me it was just a real swing and a real change in behaviour, lifestyle when she'd been fairly ordered and fairly fairly sort of plodding along in the past. This was a big U-turn and also the age. So around that 50-odd mark, things are changing, her own children are getting engaged and married, there could have potentially been a bit of a hole there waiting to be filled. And I guess I sort of felt with the TSS, the Southport School stuff, to me I saw that as more of a push rather than something that was actually going to cause her to do this, to be the primary cause. I saw that as a push And then I knew that there had to be a pull. So I had to find that pull. And then if we could get the push pull together, then I thought that we could at least get the train back on the track and start going down the right track. That was essentially my approach. Yes. And hearing somebody like Marion, who had been in quite a structured lifestyle, and then at the age of 51, she suddenly changes everything in quite a short space of time, I can understand why there were some red flags for you there. And as soon as I looked at the case, I felt similarly to the point of saying Mm -hmm. those four to six months before she disappeared, the timeline is going to be critical of unravelling that. Who came into her life across that period of time? And timeline and baseline behaviour victimology is always very important. Um, Is there somebody else influencing her to make those decisions. And I I think when I listened to you, we did an episode together, although we weren't talking together, but I re-listened to it recently from The Lady Vanishes. And in fact, you sent it to me because there's been such a big back catalogue of episodes. Yes, um, yes. I struggled to find it. And so I re-listened to you explaining that you felt that there were some red flags and you mentioned the term coercive control and you said to Alison, well, you should speak to Laura Richards 
And next, Alison is picking up the phone to me and talking to me. So you really did get <laughs> me involved in this case. And of course, once I was brought in, I just haven't left it because I've really just wanted to help. And I was really curious, Joni, of when you first came across the term coercive control. I always knew that it existed because obviously um, in my work, I mean, I was crisis intervention. So I would go in when an incident had occurred, when emergency services crews had already come and gone and essentially, you know, assisting the family, the woman to kind of pick up the pieces after that had occurred and then put into place steps in order for that not to have to happen again. But I always knew that there was this build-up and lead-up to the violent, physically violent episodes, but I never really had a term for it. But I guess, I mean, we, we always screened for that. We always looked to see, you know, for example, can the woman leave the home or is the woman needing to stay? You know, is there enough money given to her for petrol for the car, for example? We always screened for those things, but it, maybe two, three years ago, three, three years ago would have been when I first heard the term coercive control. And can you remember where you heard it from? I'm just always curious of tracking back because people have, even experienced professionals, you know, it's not been in our lexicon. And that's why I really wanted to change the law in England and Wales to give people a framework and an understanding to be able to call it something, you know, rather than say, well, it's the non-physical stuff. But actually, it's much more than that because it's about the entrapment and the grooming and the manipulation and the exploitation and the isolation. You know, there's so many other tactics that are used to entrap someone. So do you remember where you heard it or read it? I heard it from you. Ah. I, I heard it from you, from you, from yourself, yes. So we, we would always call it controlling behaviour. That was the terminology that was used here. So, yes, yeah, so you you would have been the first person that I actually heard that term from, which is a bit sad, isn't it, after 20 years of work? Well, I, I don't think that's a reflection <laughs> of you. I think it's a reflection on where we've been really in terms of the literature and writing things up and giving professionals tools and terminology and laws. And I think that's where it's been quite slow. So that's why... 2015, changing the law in England and Wales, it was a big step forward of having changed the law on stalking, where we say it's a pattern. For me, the elephant in the room was domestic abuse and coercive control, that we didn't say it was a pattern. We would, in law, people referred to it as an incident, a one-off, and not non-physical stuff, which is why the police would attend the incident and look for the physical things to prove that something happened. And of course, with coercive control, all the other elements they're not always visible. And that's why you have to ask a different set of questions. So, yeah, I think, you know, slowly everywhere's waking up. I mean, Queensland have just criminalised coercive control just a few weeks ago. And gradually across America, it's coming in and Australia. Of course, as you know, Joni, it's in the, the wake of many horrible, horrible murders that finally it's coming in. And, and it's quite right we should ask about the non-physical and how someone becomes entrapped. Either it can be emotionally, psychologically, financially, and people don't think about the financial part that can entrap you, which when we think about Marion's case, I mean, th there's just so many elements to it, aren't there? 
that when I started to look at it, there wasn't anything known about Remical. It was much more about this is some of the things that are known now that she changed her name and that she sold her house and she made a loss, which told me she was in a hurry. She needed to sell the house quickly. Otherwise, why take the loss? You know, the fact that Sally said she was giving her things, valuable things that mattered to her, and she was giving them away. That didn't make sense if she was coming back and giving her her car and just the going from somebody who was quite open to becoming secretive and the secretiveness of Sally describing a man in a car that she saw her mum with up by McDonald's after she'd sort of shooed Chris away from helping her pack the house up. That intrigued me. But you were the person who really, when when I gave my interview, it wasn't known about the ad, I don't believe, in, in much detail at that point. Or if it was known, it hadn't been tracked down to Luxembourg. So perhaps it was known about, but there hasn't, hadn't been any follow-up and the police had followed it up themselves at, at some point. And perhaps you can say a little bit about that because I know the police didn't manage to find through the number a person and it seemed a bit of a dead end. Yes, that was a rather interesting time because if I'm casting my mind back, um, I actually received a phone call from the detective at the time, which was Detective Gary Sheehan. He actually called me and because I placed a Crime Stoppers report, obviously, um, with the ad. And he just said to me, look, we haven't found any connection. We can't locate the phone number. So therefore, yeah, we'll just continue on with our investigation, um, looking into other leads. So it was, yeah, it certainly was a bit of a dead end. And then I guess looking at some of the email correspondence that has gone backwards and forwards, which I've been privy to because I've been privy to see the brief of evidence, which I'm allowed to talk about. Um, with you today. So there is a sentence in there by Detective Gary Sheehan saying they think it's this bloke, Ramakal, question mark, question mark. So it was almost said, my interpretation of that is it was said in quite a dismissive way. They think that it's this bloke, Ramakal. So unfortunately, you know, um, it took some time to actually locate that ad. So it was from a fantastic researcher in Ballina who went to the local Ballina library and actually hand-scanned the, the local Ballina phone book and actually located that phone number. And it all went from there. Needless to say, we knew that the current investigating police had located that as well a few months earlier. And so we were almost both on the same track at the same time, which was interesting in itself. Yes. And it's, and it's quite an unusual name as well, isn't it? Very unusual. So when I went through and had a look, there was 103 that were currently known in the world. So it's a very unusual name. And that always struck me. Why, why would Marion Barter from the Gold Coast Queensland pluck a name out like Ramakal? Ramakal is Luxembourg. That's the place where a majority of them are, one of the smallest countries in the world one of the rarest names in one of the smallest countries in the world. And that always just totally 
confused me and baffled me. And I guess my sense right from the word go was that even when I did locate Fernand Ramakel, who had this, he was the same age as the man in the ad, I located him. I got all, all of his business documents, which included his wife or ex-wife, Monique Cornelius. So I was able to see the connection and the relationship between the two of them with the business documents through the, Liz, um, the Luxembourg Business Register, all of his patents and trademarks. So I was able to sort of map him. And in seeing his physical stature, he was quite a small man, small in height and stature. And I guess as soon as I saw that, I just thought, okay, well, we're looking for somebody else other than this person. I guess I already had the sense that it was not going to be the real Fernand Ramackel from Luxembourg. I guess I had always thought that it was someone else using the Fernand Ramackel's identity for nefarious reasons. It never made any sense to me as to why a man from Luxembourg would be coming all the way to Australia to try and engage a woman. So therefore, yes, I had always thought it was someone living here that had done this and utilised that man's identity. Yes, I think it's very interesting. I mean, Remakel is such an unusual name and the chances of Marion taking on that name and matching it back to an ad. I mean, the two things just had to be joined together in some regard, but it's figuring out how and why and whom. And that part of the whom took you, well, it yes. took Sally to Luxembourg, didn't it, to door knock. And of course, things un unraveled yes. from there. But I think that you finding that key piece of, of evidence, I mean, it is very significant. And so much has happened since then. But for me, catching up with the case of everything that happened in between of finding Fernand Remical, the real one in Luxembourg, and knowing it's a Luxembourg connection, and obviously on the passenger car that Marion filled out, it had Luxembourg on there. For me, in terms of the investigation, of course, now it tells you that this is a global case, that it's not just about Australia. And I, I think that's really some of the frustration, you know, in terms of European authorities working with the police in Australia. I mean, there just seems to be an, an apathy around the join-up in terms of the investigation. And you really have been, along with other incredible sleuthers, doing an incredible job, yes. really, that that the police should be doing, right? I mean, for them to write, oh, some bloke Remicorn almost be disparaging when really yes, you, you are right. the ones, you know, and I can imagine that it was written to be disparaging, but it's been such an important development, so significant in this case. And really that lack of join up, I think, is what the men who try and con women, particularly when it's a global situation like Tinder swindler and so on, it's what they rely on, that women won't be believed or taken seriously. And equally for them, that I think that most of the time they know that there's a lack of join up. And that's everything that has really stood in the way of investigating what happened to Marion. And, you know, that passage of time has been a, a real challenge for you and, and everybody involved in the case, hasn't it? Yes, it certainly has. I think probably also just to add to that allegedly Rick Blum's use of borders, 
has just been another thing that I think has been utilised in the crimes that he has been convicted of. So obviously in Australia, he was primarily in New South Wales, but he was very close to the border of Queensland. And we've seen within his um, citizenship file, which I managed to gain access to, to through the National Archives of Australia, we've actually seen that. So the actual physical paper file needed to be transported across the border from one state to the other. And so therefore, it just meant that you had that time delay and you also had losses in that physical file as well that were not recovered in one state to another. And then for him to then go down to Tasmania, for example, a very small island state off the coast of Australia, again, there's some missing years there. And the same in Europe. So France, Germany, Belgium, the UK, with that ferry ride backwards and forwards, he's managed to essentially divide up all of his activities into some very tiny satellite type law enforcement agencies that haven't to this day interacted in order to get this done. There are so many benefits of microdosing and all sorts of people are microdosing to feel healthier and perform better. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. And who doesn't want that in life? I love how helpful these gummies are. For me, half a microdose gummy on the weekend helps me stay centred and fresh as I work out and get everything done on my weekend to-do list. One gummy, about 30 minutes before I go to bed, helps me relax at night and really be present in the moment instead of worrying about things from that day or thinking about what's coming tomorrow. Get 30% off your first order, plus free shipping today at microdose.com promo code crime analyst. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com promo code crime analyst for 30% off and free shipping. microdose.com promo code crime analyst. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Yes, and I'm sure that with his background, having been a, a gendarme, even in the military police, there is still knowledge that you gain when you work within law enforcement. And I'm sure that that has been exploited to its fullest degree. And, and just to say, there are things that Rick Blum has been convicted of, and we will talk about that because it's yes. a 10-page sheet of his convictions. And so we're going to distinguish between the things he's been convicted of for and where, and also the things that are outstanding, because there's a lot of matters that are outstanding, and, and we'll come on to that. When you talk yes. about the timeline and traveling, Joni, I'd really love to go back in the timeline before we talk about 
all things to do with Mr. Rick Bloom. Um, and just clarify, yes. Marion leaving for the UK, and th- this is some of the things that my listeners have asked me about. We know that she travelled and she went on um, via South Korea Airlines, and it was believed that she went via South Korea But there's the question mark about whether she may have gone to Japan, given the Hotel Nico headed paper letter that Mariam wrote to Sally and some of the things that you've uncovered in her correspondence, but also about the weather in the UK at the time. Can you just clear up some of those question marks, given that we know that Mr. Rick Bloom went to Japan and he talked about the Hotel Nico. He had a crystal clear recall of that at the inquest which surprised me, but we will talk about that. So now we've got him naming Hotel Nico in Narita in Japan, but you've also got the connection of Marion writing to Sally on that very headed paper. And we know that she did go via South Korea Airlines. What do we know about what she did once she landed in South Korea? If I could just wind back even a little bit further back than that, so in May, when Marion applied for her passport, because we've seen the, the full passport application, she actually wrote on there that she was leaving on the 23rd of June, so not the 22nd of June, and that she was going via Japan. So she actually wrote that on her passport application approximately three uh, four weeks before she left. So I found that quite interesting that as to why she would fly Korean Air when she was intending to go via Japan to the UK. That's the first thing to say. Um, I guess the second thing to say about that is that, yes, she did fly out of Brisbane and she went using the Korean Air Airlines and she did land in Korea. So we know that for a fact because I got her outgoing passenger card. As far as her going to Japan, we just can't find any other reason as to why she would have had that Hotel Nikko note paper. So where she would have possibly have gotten that from, the last time she went to Japan was in 1985 with her ex-husband. So they went there on their way to Europe. So that was the last time she was ever in Japan. So that's the, I guess, the only other place that we can think of where she may have gotten that Hotel Nikko note paper because she wouldn't have got that from Korea because it's got Narita on it. It's got Hotel Nikko Narita. So she would have to have gone to Japan to have gotten that note paper or gotten it from somebody else who went to Hotel Nikko Narita, had a lovely buffet breakfast, and then got back on the bus to the airport. So, yes, they're the only two ways um, that she would have actually have gotten access to that note paper. Yes, and apparently people would travel um, using that airline to get to Japan, right? There are obviously now bullet trains and various other ways of traveling, but to get a cheap, quick flight, it's a couple of hours, isn't it, from from there to Japan, just in terms of the geography. Is that right? That's right, yes. And in looking at the passenger manifest for that flight, there was actually a large number of Japanese nationals travelling on that flight. 
So therefore, that would suggest to me that that would have been a way to get to Japan going via South Korea. Because at that time, we've been told that airline was actually just a very budget-friendly flight to get to Japan. And at times, the Cathay Pacific manager from the Brisbane airport actually said to me that oftentimes Korean Air would throw that little side flight in for nothing. Um, so you could have that as an optional extra to be able to actually get to Japan from South Korea. That's very interesting. So it's very possible that she went. And I think what she wrote in that letter to Sally was quite interesting as well, of her saying, I finally arrived in England after a most interesting visit to the East, clouded somewhat by far too much luggage. I felt like a pack horse and am determined never to carry so much again. That's very curious, isn't it? Because visiting the East, I mean, that doesn't sound like just you're in transit. That sounds like she's spending time in the East and that she had to lug her luggage, had to carry it from A to B rather than it just transiting through. That's right. Yes. That's another thing to add to the thought that she actually did go to Japan and fly from there. Um, Sally's grandfather also said that she had told him that she was going via Japan. So the family had assumed that, that she was going via Japan. Oh, interesting. So they thought, and you also mentioned about the the passport application. So she had specified she was travelling to Europe and Japan. Yep, going to Europe. Um, slash Japan. That's really interesting. I mean, the, the headed note paper cannot be ignored because she can only get it by one of two means, as you described. But why not mention it, who she's with or what she's doing? That's the other, the question mark, I guess, that everybody is grappling with. Why not say anything about if she's with Rick Bloom or that she went to Japan? But she does describe the we the weather, didn't she? She said that the UK was very wet but it started raining on the 27th of June, which was three days after the postcard was postmarked. And therefore, she may have spent even up to a week in the East. Yes, that's right. Yes. Yeah, that was very interesting. Um, one of the super sleuths actually located the weather and we found that there was a very small window in which she could have arrived to the UK from Australia because of that description of the weather. Yes, I think it's very curious. When you, these little things on their own, Joni, they may seem unremarkable, but once you start to join them together, there are just too many aspects to this that you cannot ignore, right? That's right. The Tunbridge Wells connection, before we, we talk about Cathay Pacific, but Tunbridge Wells just really struck me as such an odd place to, if you're going to plan a trip of a lifetime, are you going to pick Tunbridge Wells? And that's not to do down Tunbridge Wells, the royal borough of Tunbridge Wells. You know, some of my friends and family live there. So it's not to do down the borough, but it's just, it's probably not that well known about in Australia, is it? I mean, certainly not in 1997. No, no. I mean, Sally has said to me many times that she just doesn't understand why her mum, like she'd never heard her mum describing that area or wanting to visit that area. 
she could certainly see when she got the little brochure of the Tonbridge Castle, she could see why her mum would have been attracted to go and see sites like that because that was some of the things that her mum was interested in. But yes, we've never been able to come up with any sort of definitive clue or answer to why she actually headed that way. It's very bizarre. I mean, to come maybe via Japan, come to London Heathrow, maybe store your luggage and then go down to Tunbridge Wells. I mean, that, that's just not a place. And, and so I started researching Tunbridge Wells, um, specifically what's available there. You know, what are the, some of the things that would draw you there? And I spoke to my cousin, I spoke to lots of different people about, you know, what's the draw of Royal Tunbridge Wells? And uh, one of the things that came up was that Groombridge Place is near there, which is where Pride and Prejudice was filmed and was also the inspiration for Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And I thought that's an interesting literary reference, Groombridge Place, that it's known for romantic literature. So I asked Sally, you know, was, was Marion very into romantic literature? And she said yes. And obviously there was the postcard with Jane Austen's house on which I thought was really intriguing. Uh, and then there was a, a part of the inquest that I recalled, and, and I think you and Sally both also mentioned it, which was when Rick Bloom was talking about where he lived in the 80s, he mentioned a place called Burwash in the UK, which is 20 minutes drive from Tunbridge Wells. Um, and not just mentioning that place, which Sally said it really raised an eyebrow for her when that was mentioned. But the other thing that he was quick to say was that Rudyard Kipling's house and where he died was in Burwash or very close to. And I thought that that was a very interesting literary reference. And it told, told me that it was important for him to let it be known about his literary background but I thought, isn't that interesting, given the Tunbridge Wells connection? And might Marion be seduced into travelling to Tunbridge Wells with all this great romanticism and, and literature and places to go and see that perhaps she probably, well, in my view, I don't believe she did go on her own. And hearing Rick Blum talk about Burwash and Rudyard Kipling's house, the, the things just jumped out at me immediately. Yes, certainly. And especially if you do add in there um, Janet Oldenburg and her evidence too of Mr. Bloom taking her to a very, to that same area and driving around, looking, peering through glass for houses for rent, doing all of those things too. It is certainly an area of interest in this case, for sure. Yes. And I recall Sally saying that Marion had said that she was going north to Tunbridge Wells when actually Tunbridge Wells was south of Heathrow. And that's an odd thing to say. If you're the person that's driving, if you're navigating or if you've researched the place, you know, you've set your heart on going to Tunbridge Wells, you're probably going to know where it is in relation to London, right? And particularly given that Marion was educated and, you know, into details, that just seems strange. Yes. I also found it quite curious. Um, again, this could just be my own own reading of it, but the fact that there was not even a delay. So she literally flew in, popped her suitcases into the luggage hold 
Um, and we've actually spoken to an employee um, that was working in that luggage hold at that time. So we got a lot of information um, from him about how long the bags could stay there and what actually happened to the bags if they weren't picked up, etc. So she had about 72 hours after the end of her payment time or else those suitcases would have been put into another area to be sold. But certainly her popping them into that luggage hold and then literally getting on a train and travelling down to an area is quite intriguing to me too as to why after such a long flight there wouldn't have been possibly some kind of delay, you know, just to rest and recuperate before taking that train journey down to the coastal area. Yes, and and in fact, in her some of the postcards, I'm, I was just quickly rereading the one with Jane Austen's house on it, where she wrote about hiring a small car, and that she loves staying in B and Bs, bed and breakfasts, and that people are, are helpful and friendly. I just think that the postcards are also very interesting, of explaining what she's doing. And obviously sounding like she's having, well, she actually says, loving every minute and having the best time in my life. She sounds very happy and obviously putting down, well, I'll I'll read it. This is the dearest tea. It was a postcard with Jane Austen's house on the front of it. And it says, hi and greetings from beautiful England, loving every minute and having the best time in my life. Have seen and explored so many interesting places and keep finding more I want to see. Roman history is particularly fascinating. Don't think about school as often anymore. Just reminded of it when I passed one of the many quaint schools. Here you can buy your own school if you have 65,000 to 150,000. Beautiful horse country. You would love it all. Weather improving. Have hired a small car and love staying in B&Bs. People are so helpful and friendly. Love to... Question mark. Sally couldn't decipher what that word was. And Colin and yourself don't work too hard. Sending you something vibes that couldn't be understood by Sally. Love always Marion. And I I think the tone of that postcard is that she's doing all these things. She's very busy. She's very happy. She signs love always Marion. She doesn't use Florabella. She uses her own name. And the fact that she's still keeping in touch when she's landed in the UK also is interesting to me. She didn't disconnect. And that tells me that she wanted to stay in touch with people or at least let them know some of the things that she's doing. And she's obviously driving around, doesn't mention anybody else. Now, the hiring a small car was my question. Did anyone find out if she did, in fact, hire a car in her name? No, no. We were unable to find any records. Attempts were certainly made to, because obviously she stated that she had taken a train down to Tunbridge Wells. So there was a number of people, um, especially Christina Panta, um, who looked into that. And certainly, yeah, there were, unfortunately, there were no records um, available after such a long period of time, unfortunately. And that's the challenge, isn't it, Joni? Everything that you've been chasing down, more so rigorously than the police, it's the passage of time. That's the greatest challenge, I believe, in this case. Yes, it certainly is. It certainly is, especially because, you know, this whole thing has been hidden. So until Sally came out and said, okay, I'm going to go to the media and I'm going to essentially take a big risk and reveal this was all hidden. So therefore, things were not kept 
all of this stuff is just run-of-the-mill, someone going on a holiday, these things are marked down somewhere, noted somewhere, and then it goes. So after seven years, 10 years, 15 years, things go. That's the reality of it. And because you don't have many informants at this particular time. So that whole benefit of a cold case, you know, coming back 20, 25 years later, because it was so hidden, this whole scenario, it's very unlikely, I think, that we will get those informants to come forward because it's not something that was publicised, you know, it's not something where Marion had a lot of interaction with others over that time period. So, Yes, it's a real shame. It's a real challenge, but maybe some of my listeners might know something. And given that I have a lot of UK listeners, that's why I'm curious about the UK chapter. She sent multiple postcards, didn't she? And the Jane Austen House one I mentioned, and that was processed on the 28th of July, 1997. But there were other postcards, uh, like the Brighton postcard, the Sally's Craft and the Cat Shop. In Brighton, there was a, a postcard that was processed on the 7th of July and it was postmarked at Hastings. And then there was a Tower Bridge London postcard that was processed with a London postmark on the 11th of July. So someone may have seen her in terms of her travels and what she was doing, or maybe they saw her with somebody else. It's, it's hard to say, but that trip that Sally took to the UK, retracing her footsteps... I think is a very important one of her understanding where her mother went. But the question mark is, who did she go with and did anyone else see them? I guess the Roman history thing is a bit of an interesting little... I certainly raised my eyebrows when I saw that postcard and saw the Roman history because that is one area that Mr Rick Bloom is quite interested in and has studied over many years. He actually sold a number of figurines here in Australia through a coin dealer locally, which were um, reminiscent of Roman history. So, that yeah, that was very interesting to me. And also the purchasing of the school. So, that is something that nobody had any idea about, her family or friends back here. And so, that was a big surprise to see that on a postcard when the rest of the postcards prior to that one was talking about working casually in a school environment, potentially doing that, but not actually selling, sorry, buying a school. That was also interesting and the money was was around the money, the amount that she or somebody else withdrew in October. So again, we did put forward to the coroner that whole scenario and pulled it all together to respond to that, the submission of that postcard in the evidence as to what that could mean. With Mr Rick Bloom, there was always a carrot. So, you know, start up a business, live in the French Riviera and have servants so you never have to do anything again. There was always a carrot and I, I guess one of the views or one of the potentials is that was the school a carrot? And we have always questioned that. Yes, the promises of a better life or the false promises, as I call them, of, you know, understanding what somebody really wants and needs in their life and then coming up with that idea to sort of take them to the the promised land where everything will be perfect and, and they can get what they want. He will enable them to get what they want and taking them to a different country 
Yes, I, I think that's very interesting that suddenly this big idea of, oh, well, I could buy a school and then money leaving her account. It did seem to come left field. And Sally certainly said she she hadn't heard her talk in that way before about possibly buying a school. It's quite a big step, isn't it, to take? Very much so. And if you also look at the Sergeant Graham Child's handwritten notes in his diary entry of the time when Sally went to the Byron Bay Police Station to report this case, he actually wrote in his notes, transfer possibly to an overseas count to buy a property in the UK. So I find that quite interesting too, that after discussions with the bank, he is actually noting that in his handwritten notes and then in the COPS event. Was that something that was communicated to him via the bank at the time? Another question mark. Yes. And it's always good to ask these questions. You know, I do think that these things that look unremarkable really are much more significant if you could join those dots together, like with the bank, money to buy a property in the UK, and then you've got a reference on a postcard of talking about buying a school out of left field, seemingly. You also mentioned Janet Oldenburg, and we are going to talk about Janet later on. But she also came up referenced with the conversation or, or thinking about the conversation with the manager at Cathay Pacific. I believe that you spoke to him about the flight that would bring Marion back. I think it's the flight CX-103 in terms yep. of coming to Australia from Europe. Can you just explain what you found out, Joni? Yes. So one of the listeners or supporters of the Lady Vanishes podcast and Sally and her story, she actually uh, messaged me and said, actually, my father used to manage the whole process at Brisbane Airport for Cathay Pacific Air. Would you like to speak to him? And so she actually put me on to her father who was retired and he was actually, yeah, managing all the customer service and those front-end operations for Cathay Pacific at Brisbane Airport. And what he said, so as soon as I um, referenced the flight number, he did say to me, oh, that flight came through from Amsterdam. So people would pick it up there and then that flight was about the only one that came back from there to into Brisbane. And so, yeah, so he said to me, oh, so it's Amsterdam. And I'll, that was very interesting to me too, because he had absolutely no context of the story. He hadn't read anything. He had no idea. He was almost doing a favour for his daughter speaking to me. So I thought that was rather interesting that that flight did originate, according to him, from Amsterdam. And Janet Oldenburg said that she flew into Amsterdam with Rick Blum, as did the lady who's called Charlotte. And Rick Blum admitted using Amsterdam a lot for his travel movements in and out of Europe. So it is curious, it, it comes up again. And Marion coming back, well, just go back to the phone call that Sally and Marion had. It was on August the 1st, wasn't it? And she travelled on August the 2nd. So it was the day before Sally and Marion had a conversation Remind me, Joni, was there sort of a, a lingering or a reluctance to hang up the call of the call dropping in and out, but Marion saying, I just want to stay on the phone, I, you know, and I'll just listen to you. It sounded like she didn't want to go, but did have to go. 
Yes, it was more so from my recollection of talking to Sally about it many times. It was my recollection that Marion just said at the end of the call, after they discussed a whole lot of practical things that Marion wanted Sally to do, like just to ensure that things were sort of tidied up. You know what it's like when you go overseas or when you move house and it's a bit of a rush and there's often some things left over at the end that you needed to do. And I guess that's how Sally termed it. But then Marion did say, okay, now your news and then you just tell me your news until the phone cuts out. So that was what was said by Sally on that. But Sally didn't interpret it as if, you know, her mum didn't want to go and it was a reluctant sort of having to leave the phone call and that there was something going on. At the time, she didn't interpret it as that, did she? Just jog my memory. No, no, I don't think she did. I think it was just more because Marion, I think she, Sally interpreted it as Marion realising that she'd taken up a lot of the phone calls, sort of just telling her quickly about her trip and then the things that Marion needed Sally to do for her. And then at the end it was, okay, now you tell me everything that's going on in your life and just tell me everything until the phone hangs up. So I think it was more just more of an exchange of I'm telling you what I need you to know and I'm okay. And she kept on repeating that even in her postcards and letters. It was, I'm okay. Please know that I'm okay. So I found that quite interesting too. But yeah, I think it was more just you just tell me everything that's been going on in your life. And so I sort of imagine Marion standing at the end in that phone booth or wherever she was at that time. I found that a little bit heartbreaking actually that she would be standing there and almost, you know, Sally telling her all of all the things that were going on in her life and waiting for that phone just to clunk and end. Yes, I find that quite heartbreaking. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go-to? What do you need to face the day? Now for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup. And my amazing sponsor, Thrive Cosmetics, has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want a wreck from me, 
You cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crimeanalyst for 10% off your first order. Yeah, almost as if, well, she certainly didn't say that she was traveling back the next day. It's almost like she didn't want to hang up the phone in a way and, and saying, I'm okay, don't worry about me. I'm having tea with little old ladies. I mean, that that did stand out to me too, that I felt that there was something to worry about and she probably wasn't having tea with little old ladies. Yes, there was certainly something going on at that time. Yes, so she travels back unbeknownst to Sally and let's just talk through what happens when she returns married, which was on her card. She comes back Cathay Pacific flight, doesn't she? So it's clearly not a return flight. Her passport is in the Florabella name and it on her card it says that she's now married. And there is usage of her Medicare card in Grafton Northern, well, New South Wales, which is near Byron Bay. Can you just talk that through, please, of just what happened or what you believe happened? Yes, yes. Well, Marion essentially got off, from what we understand, Marion got off the plane in Brisbane. She had on her incoming passenger card that she was staying at the Novotel Hotel, which was at that time, it wasn't at the airport, it was in the middle of Brisbane itself. So that she was staying there for eight days and then she was going to be returning to Europe. It was interesting to me in the passenger car that she actually, even though she was an Australian resident, she completed temporarily returning. So I thought that was quite interesting because that section is really for non-residents to fill out. So she was going for eight days. And then I guess after that, there was a series of events. But the Grafton Medicare visitation was an interesting one. So what actually occurred was on the day after she was meant to be leaving that hotel, Novotel, and returning, you know, flying back and flying out, Mr. Rick Bloom actually purchased a vehicle. Now, I've spoken to the car dealer who he purchased that vehicle from, and that car dealer had a very clear recollection because he actually knew the family. So he was able to talk through that and that there was a dark-haired woman in the car at the time. He later identified that woman as who he thinks is Rick Bloom's wife. But that was interesting to me that the police didn't think to actually follow up with that car dealer and get a statement from him, considering that it was in the time that Marion had actually returned to Australia. Yes, so after that car was purchased... Then three days later, Marion's Medicare card pings in Grafton. 
So unfortunately, at the time, the New South Wales police were looking for a doctor because they hadn't looked at the provider number on the Medicare receipt that Sally had retained. And so therefore, they were looking for a doctor. So there was a big delay in actually locating the fact that it was an optometrist. What's interesting to me about that is that Marion was still enrolled in her teachers union health service because she hadn't she had extended her teacher registration for 12 months after that you know from the June so she could have literally gone to St Paul's Terrace in Brisbane and seen an optometrist there because the dentist that signed her passport he actually shared an office with an optometrist and she would have received that service for free up in St Paul's Terrace in Brisbane. So if she was at the Novotel Hotel in Brisbane, it would have literally been a taxi ride or a bus ride to do that. Suddenly, though, she's pinging in Grafton, northern New South Wales, which is hours away, her Medicare card at an optometrist to get an initial assessment or initial consultation, which is essentially what you get when you first visit an optometrist. So the provider numbers show us that. It wasn't a complex look. It wasn't for glasses. It was just an initial assessment. That was quite interesting in that it's a long way away from Brisbane where she said she was going to be, but it's also a very short way from Byron Bay where her money had started to come out. But at the same time, we found that there was numerous optometrists in Byron Bay, Ballina, Wollongbar, all around Lismore, all around that area, there were optometrists that she could have seen. So why was she in Grafton, New South Wales, which is much further south? Yeah, and the date of that was the 13th of August that that happened. Is that right? That's right, yes. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very curious that why she would do that. Principle of least effort, you go to where it's close and easy, but... The fact that it was close to Byron Bay where the first bank withdrawal happened, I mean, is that coincidence? I find it interesting as to why if she was supposedly incognito or, you know, going under, why she would actually hand over her Medicare card to be swiped in the first place because back then the optometrist gave evidence at the coronial inquest that she would have handed her Medicare card over and it was the old credit card swipers, you know, the click-clack machines. So she would have been putting that Medicare card on there knowing full well that would have gone into some kind of permanent record because that was a Commonwealth-funded program. So therefore, all Medicare transactions could be, you know, indefinitely sought. So why she would have done that and actually placed herself there is quite interesting to me. She would have known at that stage that she was very much not where her daughter Sally thought she was or family or friends. So she was very much out on her own at that stage, if you if you know what I'm saying there. Yes. So why she wouldn't have just paid cash for that or said, I don't have a Medicare card, etc., is very curious to me. Also considering that her passport and driver's licence were in Florabella, Natalia, Marianne, Ramakal as well, but her Medicare card was not. Yeah, it doesn't make much sense, does it? No, no, it doesn't at all. 
and the fact that she, you know, was temporarily returning. And I still find it very curious that the name that she chose, Flora Bella, Natalia, Marian, Remical, that's not a name of someone going incognito. That's the name of someone that was stand out, right? Yes, that's right. And so, you know, obviously there are people who think she maybe just disappeared herself under a different name and maybe she didn't know that it was it's traceable, but the name just stands out. You know, the movement stand out if that was indeed her. And of course, that's the question, isn't it? There's so many questions about the timeline and things happening so quickly, even before she left in the spring. And given that it's a Medicare card. Now, on April the 1st, she did have a day procedure in a private hospital. Do we know what that was, Joni? Or is that something that obviously is private and people aren't privy to? We do know what that procedure was for because thankfully Sally had actually kept the receipts for all all of that, the actual procedure itself, for the blood work, for the anaesthetist that actually attended. So we were able to see exactly what that was for and it was actually for a polyp removal right near her liver. That was the procedure and that, that certainly is public knowledge that's been discussed before. Okay. Well, the April the 1st, because for me, the the timeline of thinking about the questions of her April the 1st having that procedure, if it was unknown, then it could be something that was quite serious. And that's what people think, you know, when someone just disappears, because she also used her Medicare card three times from April the 1st to the 26th of May. And then she had her blood tests, didn't she? The two blood tests on the 7th of May. But it was on April the 25th, she sells her house quickly at a loss. And then on the 15th of May, she changed her name by deed poll. On the 16th of May, she gets a new passport signed by the dentist that you mentioned. And then on the 20th of May, she applies for a new passport in the Remacal name. And a new passport was granted on the 22nd of May. And, and I think that that sort of very quick turnaround, it really is sort of, to me, where's the fire that these things are happening so quickly of her getting a new passport in that timeline of of medical things happening. And then she puts her resignation in and she's going to leave within four days. And Rick Bloom, of course, the resignation goes in on the 16th of June. She was going to leave on the 20th, the school. And Rick Bloom leaves Australia on the 17th of June. And of course, we know that Marion leaves on the 22nd. And, And that timeline is just such a accelerated timeline of activity. It is, especially with the passport too. Like it it is worth mentioning that looking back at previous passport applications, Marion had always gotten them sent to her home address, but this one was a pickup. So from the Brisbane Passport Office. So again, we've got Janet Oldenburg, her passport got picked up from the Brisbane Passport Office too. So why would Marion not have, she was living at the Gold Coast at the time, why would she have not have just simply gotten that sent to her address or her friend Leslie's address? So again, yes, everything happened in very, very quick succession. And Sally does report at that time that she was quite stressed about everything over that time. But I guess that that's a given, isn't it? Like if you're going to do all those things in such a short space of time. Um, she also had Sally's and Chris's engagement party in that time too. She had Sally's birthday. She had Mother's Day. She had all these 
different, more personal, family-oriented things. She had her father's birthday. So there was a lot happening in that time for her. Yes, the engagement on the 8th of June. And then also she had a roast, didn't she, with Sally and Chris on the 21st of June and then left on the 22nd. It's a very compressed timeline. And that's why the question mark of who or what's driving that is still the big question. And and equally, even when she lands in the UK, the, the postcards, you know, and I think about behaviour, of course, all the time. But normally when you get somewhere new, you don't buy postcards immediately and send, you know, you kind of spend a bit of time and enjoy getting acclimatised and doing things. But there, it seemed that Sally was on Marion's mind and she sent a letter and postcards and that she was very thoughtful in in those postcards as well. They weren't just random pick up cards from anywhere. They were meaningful and thoughtfully written. And and that's curious to me because this is somebody who clearly is wanting to keep in touch even when she's landed, but in the UK, but it is again quite accelerated behaviour of sending so many things, given that she was potentially going to be away for at least a year and come back for the wedding. But she, you know, was going on this trip of a lifetime that I thought in my head, you know, most people would tend to stagger correspondence and not be quite as in touch as soon as you land. And then you gradually get back in in contact. But it kind of happened the other way around that Sally received things from Marion and, and phone calls and it was accelerated. And then there's nothing. And she says, I'm taking a break. And then there's nothing. Yes, especially also to add to that, she actually sent her sister Deirdre her birthday present a month early. So when Deirdre returned home from her holiday, because she was in Europe a little bit earlier than Marianne, Deirdre actually arrived back to a beautiful brooch, which was given to her for her birthday, but her birthday wasn't until August. So Deirdre was, found that quite curious too that that would be given a month earlier. Why would she send that a month earlier if she had have known that she was going to be there for 12 months? There just seemed to be a rush, a big rush to get everything done. It is like a whirlwind. And of course, we know that there was whirlwind behaviour with other women concerning Rick Bloom. And I'm thinking about seven women in particular, and, and it cannot be ignored that in, in activity with other women, separate to Marion, there are some very clear patterns. And those patterns can't be ignored when we think about Marion. And that's what I want to talk about when we come back and we discuss the other women who were so brave and courageous to speak out, because it's the patterns of behaviour that intrigue me. Um, And that's what we talked about, you and I, regarding the coroner's inquest of when you think about coercive control and how best to illustrate what's gone on. For me, it's always about looking at patterns and similar fact and bad character of how women are targeted and their victimology and the, the charm and the love bombing and the whirlwind nature, the speed of moving things along and... Also, you know, within that, what's motivating it, but also the post, what I call post-offence behaviour, Joni, is really important as well. And I know you've done some tremendous work around timelining, Mr. Rick Bloom, but also the post-offence behaviour is really important when you see patterns that repeat. And you talked about, well, the police didn't timeline Mr. Rick Bloom and things like he bought a car. And in that period of time, when Marion came back into the country, it's really important to timeline him of what he was doing 
And when we know, and the fact that when Rick Blum targeted women and went into this sort of whirlwind behaviour of love bombing and charming and getting them to either sell things or give him things or value things, he would also, after the event, he would just vanish, but he would also move house. That's intriguing to me. Yes, every single time. And one one in particular is quite interesting to me in that he just simply moved units in a unit block. So he moved from one unit to another unit. He most certainly did move, physically uprooted his family and moved. Which is a huge deal because actually moving, for me, it's my biggest logistical headache, moving internationally, but moving domestically in in America, I did two moves in a row. And, you know, it's a huge amount of logistical work and stress to do that. So I'm very interested for us to talk more about the moving. But before we do, we're, we'll talk about the other women. You mentioned Janet Oldenburg, and there were others that, and particularly Monique Cornelius, them in particular, and then just some of the behaviours, the patterns that we see repeat. And then, just like I mentioned with the report, we overlay it with Rick Bloom's behaviour and what's similar and what's different, because there are some significant behaviours that map across that cannot be ignored and, and shouldn't be ignored. Yes. Yes. That sounds good. Can I just clarify something too um, with that relationship that Monique and Fernand were, yes, they were still married, but they had been formally separated for a long period of time when Monique took up with Rick Bloom. Fernand had another partner. They had settled in their home. She considered herself very much um, a single woman. She wasn't having an affair, an extramarital affair or anything like that with Rick Bloom at that stage. Yeah, she was an independent, financially independent and very much a single woman at that point in time. I just thought I'd mention it because it has been said that they were still married and in a relationship, but they weren't. Yeah, she was single. Yeah. I mean, she said very clearly on the um, audio interview that she was the person who was free And when she found out that he was married with children, that's when she ended the relationship because she didn't know that he was married and that she had separated. She was, she said, liberated, free and her her ex-husband. But some of the things that he said to Monique and some of the things that, you know, saying that he was a spy and just how he ensnared her of charming her and love bombing her and just how fun he was to be with and interesting and speaking many languages and having this sort of finesse about him. I think these are very interesting characteristics because often we think about someone, you know, doing the dirty on others and having these negative characteristics where actually, as we know, even from the ad that was written, it was a very polished ad. And in one of my episodes, I broke down his manipulations just within that Add to attract certain women, a caliber, a certain caliber of woman in terms of the pool that he was fishing in. And I think that's very interesting thinking about each of them and listening to each of them and what they said about how he either targeted them or he answered an ad and how, you know, he was full of many stories and able to charm and appear very interesting and well-educated and well Red, which is what he said at the inquest when he's name-checking Rajard Kipling. He was somebody who was charming and women did fall for. And that was part of his tradecraft, 
his charm and ability to uh, wiggle his way into women's lives, but also be able to talk them into doing things like going to another country or dyeing their hair blonde, doing quite extreme things, even for women who were very smart and grounded and had wherewithal about them. And I think Monique sort of presents like that, that she was savvy, but she did get taken in for a time. But then hearing about the wife and children, every, everything then changed and the way that he was to her. And, and she said specifically, he's someone who is very, very, very dangerous. And I thought her saying that, having characterised him with all this charm, was very insightful. Yes, yes. I guess my view is that there is a lot more to come in relation to um, Monique Cornelius and her interactions or relationship with Rick Bloom, because I did notice that within her evidence that she gave through her emails and things in regards to the coronial inquest, things were sort of built on over time things became, you know, more detailed and more elaborate as she went along because it's almost as though she had sort of put it in a box and put it away because she just didn't even want to actually look and actually see what that was about. So, yes, so I think that there is, there's a lot more there that can be unearthed, I think, if the right questions are asked by the right people. I absolutely agree. And she said she didn't want to think about it, wanted to put him into obscurity. And therefore that tells you there's a lot more that went on than she was just the one that got away. And of course, we have to think about the age of the women of giving evidence, some in their 90s. My goodness. I mean, just incredible courage and, and mental fortitude to do that. But I think there will be much more to come. Yes, definitely. I mean, I think an example of his charm, just to illustrate it, was when I actually spoke to the car dealer that he bought the car off in 1997, he actually said to me as a male, as an older male car dealer um, working on his own in his used car yard, um, he actually said to me that I actually felt at the time I felt very chuffed that a man of that intelligence, that that man of intelligence, and he knew a lot, and I was actually very chuffed that he would spend the time and speak to me for hours and spend time with me and talk to me about his life experiences and all of the, all of his what had happened in his life. And he said, I, I felt very chuffed that he would even speak to me. So I found that quite interesting from an older male car dealer, secondhand car dealer, that he had that kind of ability to, in a way, such impress even an older male was interesting, very interesting. Yeah, that's fascinating, Joni. I mean, it, it tells me that he is sophisticated at being able to charm anyone and everyone, that this wasn't just about, as some of the police may have characterised these silly ladies, these silly women who made bad decisions. It, it's much more about his ability to manipulate. And I think that's a very good point to end on, that it's everything that we should be looking at, the ability to charm and manipulate and getting away with it for so long, which of course green lights and empowers you even more. 
And that's something that we will definitely be returning to. So I just want to thank you so much for your time this far, Janie. Your knowledge is just incredible on this case. And I really appreciate you spending time with me. So thank you so much. Thank you, Laura. Thank you very much for having me. We'll speak next time. We absolutely will. Until next time, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. Here's my final thought and ask before the episode wraps. I really appreciate you listening to Crime Analyst. And if you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to me. It really helps others find me and my work, and it helps with the ratings too. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Rowbottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrood. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money.